You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Father, thank you um, for the gift that you give us by um, being able to come together to worship you, to spend time in prayer, to open your word, and, uh, and to have you speak among us. But uh, it really is a privilege. It is a gift. I, I know that. I know that I could just kind of go lock myself in my garage, and uh, and just spend time with just like you and me. But I know that my experience of my relationship with you would be utterly lacking without the gift of other believers, um, and, and and even others who who are not yet believers, uh, just posing questions. Lord, uh, so thank you for the gift of other people around the room this morning as we open your word together. And Lord, I pray that your word would just speak so clearly to us and that the impact of, of your cross and, and the gift of new life that you offer to us would, um, would awaken dead spaces deep within our hearts. I pray, God, that, that the impact of the cross and, and the gift of new life that you have offered to us would... Uh, would also provide healing in places where our hearts are wounded. It would soften places where our hearts are hardened. That you would bring um, sight to the blind. And that you would bring hearing to those of us who are deaf. Just in terms of trusting in you. So God, uh, I pray that you would do those things, recognizing that this is, uh, this is a work of your spirit. No, no man can uh, say the, the right things to cause hearts to come to life and to change. And so, Lord, this work of salvation that not only happens on the day that we surrender to you, but I know continues throughout the days that we um, walk out that salvation in fear and trembling. Lord, I know that that is all a work of your spirit. So I pray, God, that in these moments as I preach, that you would take my words uh, and that you would take meditations of my heart and that you would use them to do good in all who would hear. And I pray, God, that you would cause them to be acceptable in your sight. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us all come to a, a place of rest where we all say together and confess together that you are our rock and our salvation. So God, I pray those things. I believe you to do it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So, uh, so what the, the 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 word that, that I think was really stuck in my head as I studied through Luke chapter twenty three verses forty four through forty nine today, uh, and throughout throughout this last week as I studied through that um, passage, the word that kept jumping out to me was this word impact. Uh, it's the reason that we ask these questions for you to discuss around your tables this morning. It's the reason that we ask that question. What, what, what was the impact of the cross of Christ and the gift of new life? What has been that impact on your life? And for me, I'll be honest, uh, I, when I think of the, the word impact, I, I think of a number of different things. Uh, but, but you'll see on the screen that I have a picture of Bruce Lee on the screen. Anybody here a Bruce Lee fan? Oh, there's at least two of you. That is awesome. So I'm going to talk to the two of you, and the rest of you guys, I'm certain, will um, catch it. You may not be fans. Maybe you think Chuck Norris is better. Who thinks Chuck Norris is better? 
Man, okay, so you guys have not seen the movie where Bruce Lee kicks the ever-living snot out of... That's a movie. <laughs> it is a movie, this is true. All right, All right. well, one of the things that I think about um, when, when it comes to this word impacts, I think of Bruce Lee. I also think of Chuck Norris. Uh, I'm kind of a uh, martial arts lover. Uh, growing up, uh, I actually was in martial arts for a while. For those of you who don't know that, I, I have a black belt in a couple of different martial arts. Um, which doesn't mean anything other than I have a belt that held my um, Taekwondo uniform on. And, uh, um, and, and maybe if we get into a fight, I might be able to, to breathe long enough to <laughs> beat you. Um, hope somebody else comes in. Hope somebody else comes in and takes over and wins. Um, but, but Bruce Lee was kind of one of my heroes growing up. And, and uh, you know, I don't know, without going into a lot of different tangents, I, I just think of Bruce Lee's life and the impact that he made across the world, really. If you do a little bit of study on Bruce Lee, um, you'll find that he, uh, he really did. He impacted uh, everything from the arts uh, to even politics, uh, to movies, <coughs> to, uh, to, to like the, the topic of social justice. Um, in some regard, he, he actually, he, the impact that he made on the martial arts world alone, he took um, this known tradition of the martial art of Kung Fu, and then, and, and because for him it was it was too rigid and too formed and not uh, applicable to just the daily life of somebody who might get into a fight, uh, he created his own form of martial art called Jeet Kune Do, which then um, he wrote books about. Uh, and and and, I, and then I would land on this one last thing too. If you've never seen this, I would encourage you to go to YouTube and just look up Bruce Lee's One Inch Punch. The one-inch punch that Bruce Lee came up with was something that I think revolutionized the martial arts uh, as a whole. This was the impact that he had. This one-inch punch for him became so famous that people across the world were trying to do this. And basically, basically the difference between the one-inch punch and, uh, and, and any other punch is this. Uh, typically, when you see guys get into a fight and they're punching, you're typically going to see uh, these wild, like, big haymaker jaw. Wayne punches that you can see coming from like a mile away, right? And you can just throw up blocks and get out of those and just like take somebody out. Um, and, and what Bruce Lee came up with was he came up with what he called the one-inch punch. And it literally was, he put his fingertips against your chest like so, and then in the, in, in the flash of, 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 a, of a millisecond, he, would, he wouldn't even pull back. I mean, a lot of guys when they punch, they're going to pull back and wind up, right? Punch. And Bruce Lee was just like, bam, it would just drive right through through you. And you can see videos of him doing this with guys and they'll set a chair like 10 feet behind the dude and Bruce Lee would, would do this one inch punch. That guy would fly through the air um, in, in a time when there was no wires, right? <coughs> fly through the air and land in that chair. Um, super powerful punch. Uh, point of this whole story is that the impact, no pun intended, of that punch um, spread throughout the martial arts world, even the boxing world. Uh, there were some really famous um, boxing um, competitors, boxing dudes, uh, that wanted to face Bruce Lee, so to speak, because they didn't believe that that one-inch punch could have that amount of power. Okay? And uh, what happened over and over and over again was they were proven wrong. That Bruce Lee's one-inch punch really did have that kind of impact. 
something that had an impact across the world. That kind of impact is the kind of impact that I think this passage should have on our lives. It should cut that deep, and I think that it should affect us that much. And I think the widespread impact of this passage should be that broad. So let's look at the passage. Luke 23, 44 through 49. Luke tells us that it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sunlights failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that saw what or all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. All his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. There are two major movements in our passage. Uh, the two major movements is movement number one, which is Jesus dying on the cross. And then movement number two is the gift of life being made available to a bunch of people throughout our text. And so that's my hope today is to kind of approach this passage that way. And in the midst of doing that, what I want us to do is to consider the impact of those two movements upon our lives, the depth of the impact, the grandness of the impact. Um, of those two movements on our lives. So number one, when Jesus died on the cross, it was the darkest moment in all of human history. <laughs> and there's been many dark moments um, in human history as I think about it. Many dark moments where uh, like, like the darkness of, of hell has just overtaken and appears to have prevailed. Um, I think of the Holocaust, uh, I think of mass genocide or terrorist attacks. Um, I think of like some of the most unthinkable crimes of like rape and murder of young and helpless people. These are horrific and dark times, right? Horrific and dark days. Some of you gathered here have experienced difficult, dark days that seemed uh, way beyond your comprehension, your understanding, or your ability to cope with. But when I stop and think about the message of the Bible in its entirety, right? Think about the message of the Bible from beginning to end and the message of the gospel. This was not only um, the, the, the darkest moment simply because um, the sun stopped shining, um, but as you, you think about this one moment where the sun stopped shining and the Son of God died, and you think about the broad picture of the gospel and the broad picture and the story arc of the scriptures, um, when Jesus died that day, he died so that every sin, every crime from the most unthinkable and horrific and unspeakable, all the way from that end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum of the most culturally excused mistakes. Jesus died so that the penalty for all of those crimes could be paid for. So if you, if you, I think if we think in that category, um, and as we, as we, I think, lift ourselves out of some of the most horrific days that we've either seen 
witnessed or even just experienced ourselves, though those are horrific and I think we have to think in those terms, um, I think if you think in the broader category of just the horrifying evil throughout the world, this is what was leveled against Jesus that day as he became the payment for that penalty of the sins of the world, really. It's the darkest moment in human history. Number two, uh, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in half. Um, this may not seem significant uh, until we dig a little bit into uh, what this curtain was there for. Uh, the curtain in the temple stretched roughly uh, 30 feet high by 30 feet wide. Pretty massive curtain. It was nearly an inch thick. So if you hold up your hand and you look at it sideways, um, your hand's maybe roughly an inch thick at some point. This is how thick this curtain was. This is how thick this tapestry that hung there was. So you think 30, 30 feet high, 30 feet wide, an inch thick. And, and it was hung in the... In the temple, inside the place of worship. And the reason it was hung there was it separated the back room of God's presence from the front room of public gatherings. So get that, get that category in your head for a second, that this, that wall was there for that reason. That nobody dared step past that curtain into the back room of God's presence from the front room of public gathering because to do so would be to step into the very holy presence of God and to be burned up by his holiness. Right, this, uh, and I think uh, you'd have to do a bit of a study from the in the, in the Old Testament um, to, uh, to to find some of this. Um, but it's 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 really an interesting study as you think about the separation between um, that which is common and that which was holy. That there is a separation between you and I and God, and and if we are to step into His presence. Without some sort of a shield, we would get burned up because he is holy, because of our sin and our imperfectness, right? And so what would happen in the temple with this curtain is that once every year, one day, on one day every year, and in fact, let me just say this, on this day every year, on this day every year, one man would walk behind that curtain with a bucket of blood. And we begin to splash that blood up onto the mercy seat, uh, which is uh, which is a place um, that, that was part of basically part of the um, the Ten Commandments. We're inside this box, right? And uh, the box was called. Anybody know what it was called? The Ark of the Covenant. And and inside of that Ark was the Ten Commandments. I think Aaron's rod and who else is in there? Who else knows? Manna. The what? Manna. There was manna in there, right? Uh, all of this symbolically showing God's people that God was caring for them. So once a year, one man, the priest, pastor of the assembly, would walk behind that curtain with that bucket of blood and throw it everywhere, right? On this day was when that would happen. And as he did this, what he would do is he would offer that blood as a sacrifice, not only for his own sins, but also for the sins of the people that are gathered out on the other side of that curtain. So are you catching the implications between what's happening here and also what's happening just outside the doors of that temple as Jesus hangs on that cross? 
I mean, I think if you think about this, for me, the impact of that is absolutely mind-blowing. I'm not just a guy who just loves a bunch of information for the sake of information, but the picture of what's taking place with Jesus in these moments and what's happening inside the temple sends me out into like la-la land, thinking of the impact of this. <laughs> Imagine if you were a priest in the temple that day. And all this time, you've had this tradition handed down to you where you would gather that, that bucket of blood and you would head behind that curtain. And just imagine that you know this thing that's happening with Jesus right outside, right? This didn't happen in a box. You know that's taking place. You know what Jesus' claims were. I'm the son of God. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's going to um, provide salvation, right? And, and as a priest, you're, you're getting ready to walk behind that curtain. And what happens to that curtain? gets torn from top to bottom. But think about the spiritual implication of that. There was no human being that could have cut this curtain. Number one, it got cut from top to bottom. There are actually ancient writings in the Jewish Talmuds and other Jewish writings of the day that this happened and the act of God that it had to have been. Because there's no way that this curtain could have been torn in two from top to bottom without God being the one who did it. And then you make that connection to Jesus outside the gates of the city on that cross. And this curtain represents our separation from God. The separation that exists between God and us because of our sin. And then it also reminds us of the payment for our sin that has been made by Christ and by his blood. Jesus' blood was shed at the cross that day so that he could destroy the sin that separated us from our Father in heaven. The curtain of the temple was torn in half in these moments so that you and I could come into God's presence. We could leave that place of public gathering, that common place, and we could actually step behind that curtain into God's presence because Jesus has been the one who was given on our behalf so that we are now covered in his blood. The blood that the priest used to throw on the mercy seat is actually what Jesus did that day as he died. When Jesus' blood was shed at the cross, he destroyed the sin that separated us from our Father in heaven. The curtain of the temple was torn in half at that very moment when Jesus died. When it was torn in two, when this happened, it was a, like a divine demonstration of God's power, God's mercy, God's love, God's grace, God's salvation towards you and I. And right in the midst of the darkest moment in human history, think about this for a minute, in the midst of the darkest moment in human history, God shows up and light shines through that darkest moment. Reminds us that Jesus has destroyed, in our darkest moments, Jesus has destroyed our greatest enemies. He's destroyed the power and the presence and the penalty of sin. He's destroyed the power and the presence of Satan. He's destroyed the power and the presence of death. He's done that. We sang about that today in our 
in our worship, didn't we? Because of Jesus' work that day at the cross and because that, because that curtain was torn in half, because it's been ripped in two, because it was shredded to pieces. This is a picture of what happened to Christ's body, right? You think of the shredding that took place on Christ as he went to that cross and as he died. When this curtain was torn in two, from that point forward, because of Christ, we are enabled to come boldly into the presence of our Father in heaven. And number three, <coughs> when Jesus died on the cross, he, he died in complete dependence upon his Father as well. Like in the dark hours of Jesus' horrific and, and painful, lonely death, when everything seemed to be out of control, Anybody here whose life has felt out of control? A few of you. <laughs> when everything seemed to be out of control, or when there seemed to be no words of comfort or reason, when the powers of hell appeared to be winning, Jesus dies in absolute control of his destiny, resting Resting in absolute dependence upon his father. <clears throat> I just want you to think for a minute. What, what does that look like for you to rest in, in complete dependence upon your father? What does it look like for you to move away from depending upon your own strength? What does that look like for you? Think about that for a minute. What does it look like for you to rest and to quit striving? To make ends meet on your own? What does it look like for you to rest and quit striving against all of the, the powers of hell that are getting tossed at you? What does it look like for you to step back into presence of God and rest in his presence and no longer do things in your own strength. To follow this example of Christ as he gives himself sacrificially at the cross as he dies. What would this look like in your marriages? What would this look like for you as parents? What does this look like for you in your friendships? What does it look like for you to rest? Quit striving. Because in these moments when we see Jesus, we see him depending absolutely on his father. Luke tells us, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then having said this, he breathed his last. And for those of you that have been here for, for the last three years as we've studied through this book, can you, can you catch the weight of the fact that Jesus in these moments is dead? He's no longer alive. He stopped breathing. He breathed his last. He rested his life in his father's hands. It's a picture of absolute control in the midst of surrender and in the midst of chaotic darkness, really. Like Jesus didn't lose control in these moments. But the picture for you and I is to give up control. Because what we strive for so often 
in our relationships, in our pursuits. Every breath of Jesus' life was breathed in complete dependence upon his Father. And now in his death, he, he surrenders his, his spirit, his final breath, and all of his life's work, all of his life's pursuits, he surrenders all of that into his Father's hands. Into your hands, I commit myself. This is absolute rest, absolute dependence upon the presence of his Father. And the question becomes this, like what kind of good comes out of death? What kind of good comes out of a death like this? What kind of blessing comes out of pain? Like if you just stop for a minute, we know the big idea. We know that Jesus dies so that the gift of life can be given. But don't we often ask that question in our own personal lives? Man, why does death come? Why does dark times come? Why do I struggle with this sin? What kind of blessing can come out of that failure yet again? Isn't that what takes us down? Right? What kind of good can come out of this? I think the only answer that is worthy of the suffering that Jesus endured in this passage is just simply that which we've talked about is that this death happens so that new life can be given. What kind of people can receive the gift of life? Look at the text again. The gift of life was made available to three different kinds of people in our passage. Made available to the Roman centurion. Luke tells us that when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Like, listen, this, this Roman centurion wasn't just a soldier at home on leave that just stumbled into this public gathering, right, where Jesus is being crucified. This centurion was the man who directly oversaw the public murder of Jesus, this centurion was the, the boss man. He was the man who called the shots. He was the one who pulled the trigger. That's the centurion. So lest you think this is just some innocent bystander that was like, holy crap, this is a horrifying thing to see. This surely is the son of God. I'm going to give my life to him. No, that's not the story. The story really is this man was an was a evil and dreadful man. You would not want to face this man on the street. This man had just overseen the execution. He had told the other soldiers where to place the nails. He'd explained to them how to use the whip. He had told them how to hoist Jesus' body up into the air. That was this man. He was a horrendous man, a horrible man. The one man that you and I might say, that man could never get saved. That's the kind of man that, that the Roman centurion was. And yet, yet... In the midst of all that is happening, all that is taking place, this Roman centurion praises God with his lips. That man was previously unable to do that. He was cursing and mocking Jesus. And in a blink of an eye, his old heart of stone, his old heart of evil, his old heart of vengeance, his old heart of anger, his old heart of murderous intent towards God was taken away. He was given a brand new heart in those moments and his old heart that was a rock was now a, a, a heart of flesh where he was able to praise God. 
his words of cursing at Jesus, his actions of murderous intent towards Jesus, all of those things were changed in an instant, and he praised God with his mouth, and he recognized Christ's innocence. Something changed. The gift of life was made available to this Roman centurion because Christ died at that cross. The second group of people is uh, the large crowd of spectators. Uh, the gift of life was made available not only to the Roman centurion, but also to a large crowd of spectators. Like all throughout the ages, um, people have gathered for public events, right? And the death of Jesus at the cross of Calvary was no different. Luke tells us that all the crowds that had assembled in verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, and you might underline that word, this spectacle, right? This is where people become spectators, which is never what the church was intended to be in the first place. We were never intended to be spectators, where we watch something happen, where we come because it's a great event. We were always intended to be participants. All the crowds that had assembled for this spe spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. So the gift of life was, was made available to this large crowd of spectators. Instead of being entertained by what was taking place, and they were cut to the core. That's the question for you and I. If you're here and you're, you're listening to what I'm preaching, and you're, you're not cut to the core by what's taking place in these moments, I, I would be very concerned for you. It's just me. I'd be very concerned for you. Because the question would be, has the Lord woken your heart up or not? Does this picture of Christ at the cross impact you to the place where you are cut to the core by what he did for you? Are you bored with that? Indifferent to that? Angry about something else in your life so this doesn't matter to you? Like, what kind of impact does this passage have upon you? Part of a crowd this morning, right? Hearing a message. In some regard, you guys get to be spectators, right? But in another regard, you really are participants as you listen and as the Holy Spirit works among us to apply that to your hearts. So when the gift of life is made available by the death of Jesus, large crowds of people all throughout human history have responded in brokenness. And maybe ask that question. When you go home today, are you going to go home beating your breast in brokenness over what Christ has done for you? Or will you leave from here and go back untouched, uncut, and go back to the, the regular rhythms of your life? What will the impact look like for you as you think about this day that Jesus died and the gift of life was made available to you? third group of people that were impacted by Jesus' death in this passage uh, is, uh, is a group of Jesus' followers, right? Verse 49. So the, of, uh, the, the, the death of Jesus doesn't just impact uh, the most terrifying enemies that Jesus had, like the Roman centurion. Jesus' death doesn't just impact large crowds who gather for public entertainment, as it has done uh, throughout the centuries. Jesus' death actually has a profound impact upon every person who actually follows him. So the question is, if you're here and you're not following him, this could have an impact on you in such a way that you become his follower. 
and that this would continue to impact you for the rest of your life. And the other implication is that if you're here and you claim to be a follower of Christ, then, then there should be an impact on your life. Luke tells us that all of his acquaintances, so are you here this morning? Do you call yourself an acquaintance of Jesus? Do you put that stamp on yourself that you're a Christian? That you're a Christ follower? Are you, are you an acquaintance of his? And the women. The one thing I love about Luke is Luke, more than any other biblical gospel author, mentions women more often than any other. And part of that is because the culture uh, in, in, in that day viewed women as being secondary and less than men. And Luke, I think, in his great way of writing, elevates women to the equality of men in the gospel. And Luke does that in a really fantastic way here. Um, you, we'll see this later as women uh, are some of the primary people that, that witness Christ's resurrection. All of his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. In other words, you put yourself in their shoes. Jesus' followers watched as he died on the cross so the gift of life could be made available to anyone who would follow him. Like this moment for Jesus' followers uh, would have most likely been um, crazy. You think about being uh, a follower of Christ in that day. What would you have thought about in those moments? What do you think they remembered? Maybe they remembered Jesus prophesying to them about how this was going to happen, right? Jesus said these things. Listen, now maybe this is what was running through their head. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And can you imagine yourself when you're with Jesus and you're sitting around the fire and he says that and you're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, quit, quit trying to ruin our night. Like, can we just go back to eating our dinner? And you missed the fact that he said it until the day that it happened. And then you're standing there absolutely horrified by what's taking place, right? I think that's the place they were in as they're watching. I think they're horrified because they didn't, they didn't catch it the first time around. The second time Jesus said... He says it this way, let these words sink into your ears. Like, I love Jesus as a preacher because he wasn't afraid to say, hey, open your ears and let this sink in. I know you're hard of hearing. So open up your ears, listen to me. Quit being distracted, right? Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. This is Luke 9, 22, 44, 18, 31, 33. Three different times Jesus prophesies about his own death. Can you imagine the impact of that moment on their life? What that would be like for you? It leaves us with three questions of application that I hope would be helpful for us. Um, number one, how does the cross of Christ impact your struggle with shame, guilt, fear, and sin? If the big idea of this passage is that Jesus died at the cross so that you and I could be given the gift of new life, 
then I think one of the questions we've got to ask is, how does that, how does that impact our struggle with shame, guilt, fear, and sin? Man, I mean, all those words, shame, guilt, fear, sin, all powerful motivators uh, in our lives, powerful motivators to keep us separated from God. Think of how ashamed or guilty or fearful you feel sometimes. Think of, how, think of how ashamed or guilty or fearful the Roman centurion might have felt in these moments if you were him. Consider how ashamed or guilty or fearful the, the, the priests in the temple might have felt when they saw that curtain torn in two, when they realized that they had missed the truth of what Jesus had been saying all along. When you realize how bad your sin is, when you lose it on your kids, when you give in to lust, when you fall into self-loathing, when these things happen in your life, does shame take over for you? Do you give in to that guilt? Does your guilt drive you back to more sin to cover up that feeling? Or, 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 or do you fear being found out by someone else and so you try to hide it? Or, on the flip side, do you, do you run to the back room of God's presence because that curtain has been torn in half? Because in Christ, you now have access to your Father. There is no more shame. There is no more guilt. There is no more reason to fear. We have not been given over to a spirit of fear, but we have been given the spirit of sonship, whereby we have been adopted by our Father in heaven who loves us. Do you run to his presence in those moments where you feel that way? Because when the curtain was torn in two and when Christ died at the cross, the gift of new life was made available to you. And that now means that you can run to the back room of God's presence through prayer, confession, fellowship with the saints, worship, the reading of scriptures. Like this is how we run away from our shame and our guilt and our fear and our sin. Number two, <clears throat> number two, how does the cross of Christ impact your pursuit of relationships and material possessions? I want you to think for a minute about the darkest moment of your personal life, the darkest experience you've ever had when there seemed to be no hope, when it felt like all the powers of hell were winning, when it seemed like there was no light at the end of the tunnel, when that relationship was falling apart, when your finances were in ruin, when your kids were off their rocker, when your marriage was struggling, when the, when the car breaks down, when the garage catches on fire. This happened to me last night. Um, grilled some food. After grilling the food, turned the grill up on high. Uh, to burn off the gas or, or the grease, went inside, forgot about it, decided to eat dinner. About 15 minutes later, probably 15 minutes later or so, a couple of girls came running to the house. Joe, Joe, Christy, your garage is on fire. Yeah. So we were running outside, sure enough, um, the grill right alongside the garage had caught the side of the garage on fire. So we're running all around frantically, uh, trying to figure out a way to um, put out the fire. Kind of a dark, scary moment. 
I know we've all faced darker. It just seems like an, an, an appropriate time for a good story, right? We've all faced darker moments. This is a pretty dark moment, though. I have my two bikes in there. I want to lose those, right? Man, yeah, here, yeah, it didn't take a turkey fire this time. This time was just the, uh, the grill. And so there will be endless jokes, I'm sure, about Joe's ineptitude when it, yeah, I know. when it comes to Joe's ineptitude, when it comes to fire and grease. But we've all faced dark moments, and sometimes those dark moments in our lives have come at the hands of someone else who abused you, hurt you. And other times that dark moment of your life has come because of your own sin, your own failure, your own mistake. What do you do in those moments in terms of relationship and pursuit of material possessions? Do you remember that even in those darkest of moments, Jesus' death of the cross was the light at the end of the tunnel? Jesus died at that cross so that the gift of life could be made available to you and to me and to all who have lived apart from God because of our sin and our failure and our mess and our mistakes. This is the good news of the gospel for us today. That in the midst of that dark moment and dark day, Jesus extends the gift of new life to you and to me. And in those moments, he beat back and was victorious over the darkest powers of Satan and sin and death. How will that picture impact your life moving forward? Finally, third question is, how does the cross of Christ impact your involvement with public events and your job? And there are people gathered on this day for this public spectacle so they could be entertained, listen, at the expense of the horrific suffering of the Son of God. Like that's what they were being entertained by. Some of the people in this passage, as we read and as we studied, even held public vocations, right? Their jobs required that they live in open sin and war against the Son of God. So I think it's a very appropriate question to ask of us. Like in your pursuit and engagement and involvement in public events, concerts, movies, right, dances, and we're not that kind of Baptist church, just so you know. Um, what does that look like for you? In terms of your engagement in public things, social media is huge for us. You think about what you've posted on your page over the last year. Are the things that you post and the things that you engage in, are they acts of war against the Son of God? Or do they actually glorify God in the way that you live? question is, has, has the cross of Christ impacted your public life to the extent that your involvement with public events and even your job, think about when you're at work, the conversations you have with people, the way that you talk about your employer with other employees, uh, or the way that you talk with other employees about other employees, has, has your life been impacted by the cross of Christ to the extent that you are now living differently in those realms and in that public place? 
I think the cross of Christ and the gift of new life that he offers us should impact our lives like dropping a rock into the surface of a lake. And that the ringlets and the ripplets of that, like a butterfly effect, when a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the world, it affects the wind and the rain on the other side. And if those small things have that kind of impact on our lives and in this world, then what greater impact should the cross of Christ have upon your personal life, your spiritual life, and your public life? That's the question I want to leave you with. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for our time together in your word, and thank you for the truth that you did send your son to die at the cross so that we could have the gift of new life. Lord, I pray for us as we enter into a time of worship and prayer, and I ask God that you would help us um, to be mindful of this truth and to apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, everybody said. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.